This is AQR's The Curious Investor, a show that breaks down some of the most important ideas in finance to help us make better investment decisions. I'm Dan Villalon. And I'm Gabe Figali. In today's episode, we're going to talk about three words that can scare a lot of investors. Inverted yield curves. Conventional wisdom is that when the yield curve inverts, a recession is on its way. So we're talking with two folks who spent a lot of time studying if that's true. I am Jordan Brooks, principal at AQR Capital Management, where I oversee fixed income, portfolio management, and research. I'm David Coopersmith. I'm a principal at AQR Capital Management. I cover discretionary macro. Let's start with what the yield curve is. Essentially, it plots the yields of different government bonds. Picture a graph where these bonds are arranged by maturity, going from shortest maturity on the left to longest maturity on the right. At each maturity, you have a dot for the yield of each bond. And when you connect the dots, voila, you get the yield curve. Typically, this curve is upward sloping. In other words, shorter maturity bonds usually have lower yields than longer maturity bonds. And there are a number of theories for why that might be. Here's David Coopersmith. Generally, people think that to lend longer, to give your money to the government for 10 years, you're going to require a higher rate for giving up your money for that period. Now, you call that a term premium. One reason for this is potential inflation. If you buy a 10-year bond for $100 today and inflation spikes, the $100 you get back in 10 years isn't worth as much. And inflation can have a bigger effect on long-term bonds than short-term ones. Here's Jordan Brooks. Shorter maturity debt right, is going to be very insensitive to changes in inflation because I'm going to roll over in three months from now and I'll buy you know, another bond where the current and prevailing level of inflation is priced in. Typically, in a world of variable inflation, you tend to see that the yield curve is upward sloping on average, reflecting a premium. You got to pay me a little more to hold the longer maturity debt than to roll over shorter maturity debt. But this hasn't always been the case. There was a time when there was less uncertainty about future inflation. In the period, call it, you know, from the the revolution to the time the U.S. came off the gold standard, price level stability was more the norm. In other words, inflation was, you know, averaged around close to zero, right? So prices were kind of stable, inflation's close to zero. So you had very, very low inflation that wasn't all that variable. The typical shape of the yield curve, actually, during that period was flat to inverted, because now inflation's no longer a risk. But after the Gold Reserve Act of 1934, inflation became more of a source of uncertainty. It's a big reason why in the last 80 years, yield curves have generally had a positive slope. But inflation isn't the only reason yield curves can slope upward. There's also economic growth. Back to David. If you think growth is going to be high, you may think that other investments would be better over that period. And so you need more from the government to put your money away for those 10 years with them. Think of it like this. If everyone was really confident about the economy's growth prospects, they might want to buy more stocks and sell their bonds. And if bond prices drop, that means yields go up. So who controls the yield curve? Who determines if the slope is steep or not? Well, that depends on which part of the curve you're talking about. 
The yield curve itself is not fully controlled by any one individual or any group. In most developed economies, the central bank controls the front end, or at least has very heavy influence on the front end, meaning very short-term rates. Beyond that, in most countries, it's up to the market to determine the rest. So anything from really from two year out is, is market determined. The central bank will have some influence on it. But outside of Japan, which has an explicit policy of controlling the long end, it's up to the market to determine that. Even though central banks control only the short end, they can influence the slope of the entire yield curve. For example, it's possible to steepen the curve just by cutting the short rate. And that's because it'll move more than the long rate. So they'll bring rates down on the short end. Probably the long rate will go down a little bit. But it may increase inflation expectations in the long run if they're lowering rates. There's a little bit of a trade-off on the long end, whereas the short end will move a lot. For the most part, when a central bank cuts rates, the yield curve steepens. Short rates go down, long rates don't go down by as much. The reverse is true if they hike rates. The short rate goes up more than the long rate, and the curve usually flattens. A central bank might want to move the short rate for a number of reasons. One of the big ones is inflation. Generally, the effect of inflation on the yield curve is more on how it affects monetary policy. If inflation gets high, people will think that the central bank will hike rates and that will flatten the yield curve. Another big factor is how the economy is doing. Slack in the economy means that the economy is operating below its potential. It means that there's a lot of unused resources. Maybe unemployment is high. There's a lot of people out of work who could be working and producing things. If slack is high, it'll probably mean the yield curve is steep because it means that the central bank will probably lower rates to kind of get that slack working. And that might lead to more borrowing, which means companies can grow more and hire more. It probably means that growth right now is lower than it will be in the future as the slack starts to get used. So that would be an example of when the yield curve should be steeper. Recently, some central banks have been even more subtle when influencing rates. Sometimes they might just use communication as a tool without actually touching the short rate. They promise they're going to keep rates low. That may affect the slope of the yield curve because it may tell people something about what they can expect in the future from the Fed. So maybe that'll bring rates down or raise them up, and it may not reflect their actual expectations about the economy rather than just what the central bank is saying. Beyond central banks, other forces like demand from pension funds can affect the curve too. This has happened in countries where pensions have been mandated to hold more treasuries, say they want to have a safer pension system or they think that's a better way of running the pension system, then they'll be required to hold long-term treasuries and that should flatten the yield curve because there'll be all these buyers of that. So there's a ton of information embedded in the slope of the yield curve. And history suggests you might want to pay attention to that. It's been documented that a steep yield curve usually predicts strong economic growth into the future. That's Jordan again. Well, what's strong economic growth associated with? Well, it's associated with monetary policy moving more contractionary. In other words, a central bank that's increasing interest rates. And so now you see the mechanism. Why does a, an upward sloping yield curve forecast strong future economic conditions? Well, the yield curve is upward sloping when people expect the Federal Reserve to crank up interest rates. The Federal Reserve cranks up interest rates when the economy's doing quite well. The yield curve usually slopes upward. For instance, in the U.S., from 1966 through 2018, it sloped upwards 89% of the time. And more broadly, across G6 countries in that same period, 92% of the time. But even though it's kind of rare, 
a lot of people get worried when the yield curve slopes downward. When it does happen, though, people have noticed, in the U.S. anyway, that afterwards there ten- it tends to precede a recession. And it's not a fixed time frame. Sometimes it can be six months. Sometimes it's a year. Sometimes it's 18 months. But generally, when the yield curve inverts, it's followed by a recession in the U.S. And Jordan says there's a pretty intuitive explanation for why. Inverted yield curve means that you expect short-term interest rates to go down. So you expect monetary policy to go more expansionary. Expect the Fed to cut rates or the ECB to cut rates. When do they cut rates? When things aren't going particularly well, they cut rates into a recession. History doesn't have a ton of examples of inverted yield curves. And when they do occur, they usually don't last for a long time. For the G6 countries from 1966 to 2018, the average duration of an inverted yield curve was only 10 months. It's hard to draw strong conclusions when you don't have much data. But it's still worth taking a look at the past to see what you can learn. When inflation was very high in the early 80s and the Volcker Fed hiked rates up to, you know, 15, 16 percent, wherever, the yield curve was inverted. The short-term rates were much higher than the long-term rates at that time. If the Fed is forced to fight high inflation, it's probably not a good thing for the economy in the short run because they're purposely making monetary policy tight. They're making it hard for people to borrow in order to bring inflation down. And one of the casualties of that could be the economy in general. And in the early 80s, that's exactly what the Fed did. They hurt the economy. They killed growth in order to bring inflation down and bring it down permanently. They were successful in doing so, so a lot of people think that was good policy. But it caused some short-term economic grief, definitely. And sometimes inversions happen a bit less intentionally. Another example would be usually at the end of economic cycles, you see that, where the Fed has hiked too far and brought the short rates up above the long rates. And this late cycle story is one that you've probably heard a lot lately. But even though inverted yield curves have tended to precede recessions in the U.S., the global evidence isn't as strong. In Germany, it's generally predicted recessions, but it did miss the one during the euro crisis. There was no yield curve inversion, and there was a recession in Germany. Two counterexamples to the yield curve as an effective predictor are Australia and Japan. In Australia, there have been, since 1990, there have been several yield curve inversions, And there haven't been any recessions following them. Granted, growth did slow down, but there were no recessions. In Japan, we haven't had a single yield curve inversions up until maybe very recently. But up until 2016, there weren't any from the early 90s on. And Japan has had multiple recessions. So we've seen both sides in global economies where yield curve has not been a particularly good predictor. Let's get to why investors might care about the slope of the yield curve. One of the big things is something called carry. Carry is basically the yield of long-dated bonds minus the yield of shorter-dated ones. It's positive when the yield curve slopes upwards. And carry can matter a lot. When the yield curve is flat, the carry on your longer-term bonds can be reduced. And that's not just true for bond investors, but also for banks. A lot of their business model is borrowing short and then lending to people long. You think about you deposit your money um, overnight. You can take it out any day. But when you take in a mortgage, it can be five years floating or it can be even a 30-year fixed mortgage. So banks naturally sort of have this mismatch. And they benefit when the yield curve is steeper because they're able to lend longer and make more money. Carry can be a source of returns whether you're a bank or a bond investor. If the yield curve is upward sloping... That means as time passes, your bond's yield goes down. 
it's like you're sliding down the yield curve. And as yields go down, the price of a bond goes up. On the flip side, if the yield curve is inverted, your carry is negative, and you slide up the yield curve as time passes. And when yields go up, your bond's price goes down. And this raises a question. If you're an investor, can carry help you figure out if bonds are attractive today? It's a signal, right? The slope of the yield curve is closely related to the carry of a fixed income instrument. So carry tells me something about expected returns. It's not equal to expected returns. I don't think any one thing is always going to tell you, but I think it's fairly good. It's as good, really, as most of the others out there. I think you have to use it, you know, looking at at general economic momentum, looking at other measures of tightness of monetary policy. I think it's something that people should look at, but they shouldn't put all their eggs in that basket. And even when you have a lot of decent indicators, market timing is still hard, even in bond markets. Well, you know, people for, I don't know, the last 29 years have expected interest rates to rise. I think because you could predict in some way the direction of the Fed funds rate, people somehow think, well, well, that means mechanically I could predict what bonds are going to do, what's going to happen to longer-term yields. No, longer-term yields embed expectations of future funds rates. So you'd somehow have to have more information that's currently priced in, just like timing any other market. But let's say you do want to use the slope of the yield curve to make tactical decisions. you got to be careful with how you implement them. Let's say the yield curve is inverted, and two-year bonds offer higher yields than 10-year bonds. Based on that, you say to yourself, okay, I want to hold higher-yielding bonds. So you tactically shift your bond allocation to these shorter maturities. You've made a bet on maturities. But really, that's a really small bet that you've made on maturities. The big bet you made is you reduced your overall duration. Duration is a measure of risk, and it's generally related to maturity. So when you go from a portfolio of 10-year bonds to a portfolio of 2-year bonds, you've also just lowered your duration. In other words, you might be taking a massive unintended bet when you reduce the maturity of your portfolio. Even though you have the same number of dollars invested in bonds, by reducing your duration, It's as if you've underweighted your entire bond allocation. Which is a timing bet, right? And that's really swamping the maturity bet. If you really want to bet on maturities, you want to do that, and you want to think of that in a kind of a duration-neutral way. Let me keep my overall bond market position the same, so my overall duration risk the same, but let me move some of that to different points on the curve that I think are more well-compensated. People mess this up consistently. The years following the financial crisis are unique in many ways. One of them is how low bond yields have been. And this is across the whole yield curve. So the Fed brought rates to zero to fight the economic crisis in 2008, 2009. They've left rates at zero for a very long period of time um, and just started, you know, a few years ago to start to bring them back up to more, I guess people would say, normal levels. The problem is, even though inflation has been very low, it's been mostly below their target or around their target of 2%, the feeling is that they needed to get the rate back to a more normal level or there would be future inflation. They're kind of surprised, I think, with how much the yield curve has flattened or at least how little inflation there's been considering how low rates have been. And remember, the short end of the yield curve can really affect its shape. 
Given how flat the curve is today, a rate hike could easily lead to an inversion. But not all inversions are created equal. Jordan cites a paper by Jonathan Wright at Johns Hopkins that argues the starting level of rates matters a lot. An inverted yield curve with a overall high level of interest rates is different from an inverted yield curve with a low level of interest rates. What's the better forecaster of a recession? An inverted yield curve with a high level of interest rates. Here's the intuition. Let's start with an inverted yield curve when interest rates are fairly high. What does that mean? Monetary policy is tight today, and investors expect it to move looser. Well, that's presumably commensurate with monetary policy that's trying to slow down the economy now, and the people expect it to move more accommodative as the economy softens. And this is different than an inverted yield curve with a relatively low level of interest rates, like what we've seen lately. You do have then benign expectations for how interest rates are going to change. People might be expecting interest rates to stay flat or even go lower. But the current setting of monetary policy is not contractionary. It's, it's, it's somewhat stimulative. Um, and you know that, that latter case characterizes this world better. That's not a forecast. But it's simply saying that this, this is not the garden variety inverted yield curve where the Fed funds rate is 6% and longer term bond yields are 5%. Right? This is a very flat curve at a low level of interest rates, which economically might mean something a little bit different. And look, while inversions are unusual, the yield curve is a big place. It's pretty easy to find something unusual if you look hard enough. Now we're getting to the, the, the point of ridiculousness at this point, right? If we just pick out, you know, kind of two random yields and you can always find some weird statistic. Um, there's also nothing special about you know, a five basis point inversion versus, you know, 15 basis points upward sloping, right? It's not like there's some dramatic cutoff. Inverted yield curves do get a lot of attention. I mean, this whole episode is basically dedicated to them, but they aren't exactly new. Every time I hear anything about flat or inverted yield curves, there's always this sort of cry for, like, this time is different, that, that this actually people need to pay attention to this mm. thing. What would it take for you to be like, oh, you know what? This time is different. This is something new, and we need to think of a new way of accounting for what we see in the macroeconomy. I saw a great – it was a speech – it was a trader at, at the Drobny conference once, and I don't necessarily subscribe to it. But I thought it was a great point. He said, I don't predict anything I haven't seen before. There's a lot of reason and rationality to it. If you don't have any empirical basis, then you should kind of stay away from forecasting what that means. And that doesn't mean you can't abstract from theory and things like that. I think you can, but I think you have to moderate your conviction level. right? So that doesn't mean that an inverted yield curve now can't be different than what it's signaled historically. Surely it can. But I can't say that with a, with a large degree of conviction. I'm not going to go run, jump out a window and start screaming like a lunatic because the three-year, seven-year point on the yield curve inverted. And remember, bonds are typically part of an investor's portfolio, not the whole thing, which means you have to think about how much diversification you give up when you make any tactical decision. So on the margin, maybe you want to adjust your duration a little bit, but I caution against doing that too much because fixed income is still a good diversifier in your portfolio, and you might need it in this environment. For listeners who want to go deeper, check out our webpage at aqr.com curious. And if you want to carry on with this topic, send us an email at curious at aqr.com. 
On the next episode, we shine some light on one of the most argued about topics in investing, diversification. And we ask if diversification doesn't save you every time your portfolio's in trouble, then why not hedge it instead? As an investor, we're choosing to invest, and we're choosing to invest in order to earn a return. If buying insurance to protect against adverse outcomes eliminates the return, then what was the point of doing this in the first place? Until then, I'm Dan Villalon. And I'm Gabe Figali. Thanks for listening, folks. Have you heard any reasons or have you gleaned any insight as to why people think timing fixed income is somehow easier well, to do? Well, we're at the end equities? of the cycle. I don't know what that means. It sounds good. <laughs> we're mid-cycle. We're at the end of the cycle. We're late cycle. Throw the word secular in. It seems yeah. like a Well, everybody's known. Trying to tactically adjust to hit all the short-term dynamics, you know, is a fool's errand. In- and on that Don Quixote reference, I'll uh, no, go oh, ahead. man. That's good. It's not bad, right? Yeah. I didn't know you were into the literature. Yeah, you know, a little bit. A little bit. Uh, I've been compared to Sancho Panza in the past. <laughs> and the horse. I forget the horse's name. Um, the horse is evidently as deluded as Quixote. Yeah. Rosalinda, I think. That's it. Yes. That's it. Yeah, it's going to be my Halloween costume. <laughs> the views expressed in this recording are the personal views of the participants as of the date indicated and do not necessarily reflect the views of AQR itself. Nothing contained in this recording constitutes investment, legal, tax, or other advice, and it should not be viewed as a current or past recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The information in this recording is based on current market conditions, which will fluctuate and may be superseded by subsequent market events or for other reasons. AQR does not assume any duty to update forward-looking statements. The information in this recording has been developed internally and or obtained from sources believed to be reliable. However, no representation or warranty, express or implied, is made or given by or on behalf of AQR as to the accuracy and completeness or fairness of the information contained in this recording. Any liability as a result of this recording, including any direct, indirect, special, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. Copyright 2019, AQR Capital, LLC, all rights reserved. Oh, I realized that uh, when Jordan and I were talking about Don Quixote's horse, it's Rocinante, not Rosalinda. Oh. Should we leave it in because it's funny? I think we leave it in. I think so, too.